We started a sermon series last week called 360 Degree Giving. And we're going to be looking at giving in a lot of different directions. And last week we saw that we need to give upward. We need to give to the Lord. And that's more than just giving to the church when the plate passes. That's giving to needs all around you, giving as the Lord directs. And when we give upward, God will enrich us in every way. Why will he enrich us? Well, listen, so that we can give even more. Not enrich us so that we can have the high life on earth, not enrich us so that we can get more things, but to enrich us so that we can be even more generous in the kingdom of God. So I, I've got, I got an email last week. And I'm sharing this with you by permission. And here's what it said. I get paid every two weeks. So I put in my offering every other Sunday. And my company altered our payday. So this past Friday was supposed to be a full payday, but it wasn't. And it left us short for the week. But despite this, my wife wrote out our giving check today, trusting that our God would provide I decided to start my spring cleaning this afternoon a little bit early. And instead of going skiing with some friends, I was up in the attic and I was cleaning the basement. And I was going through some old birthday cards at the bottom of a dresser drawer. And I found $20 more than what we gave today. And since I've started volunteering at one of our ministries, you can guess where that money is going to be headed. Listen, that person got it. You give to the Lord as the Lord directs. He will enrich you in every way. Why? So that you can give even more generously. You simply cannot outgive God. Now, I wonder if you believe that. So I want you to think about that. You remember, you interact when you are listening to preaching. You don't just shut your mind off or put it in neutral. You've got to interact. So do you at your soul's level, have the ability to say yes, amen to this statement that I just read, you simply cannot outgive God. Do you really believe that? I mean, it's all his. Everything we have is God's. And the surpassing grace of God, it's ready to help us from the inward, inside out, become generous givers. Giving as he directs, uniquely, decisively, freely, cheerfully. And some of the greatest joys in my life have been experienced when my heart is freed from anxiety over money. And I'm able to give as the Lord directs. It's some of the best joy in my life. Well, today, God's word is going to help us to give inward. Now, we're looking at inward. We're going to give inward and overcome the power of coveting. I want you to look, look with me in Luke chapter 12. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Let's open them up. Let's be in God's word together. Listen, bring your Bibles to church and mark them up. Underline them. Put notes in your Bible. A marked up Bible will mark up your life. And we're looking at Luke chapter 12 and we're going to just notice verse 1 before we skip ahead to our passage. Look at verse 1 for a moment. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So this gives us a little bit of a background. These many thousands of people, they had come to listen to Jesus. They came to hear what he was going to say. But look at the end of verse 1. Now you've got to get this. This is so important when you're reading the Word of God. 
It says, he began to say to his disciples first. So here's what's happening. Thousands of people have gathered to hear Jesus. And they're all around, but yet he takes his disciples, and even though there's all of these thousands and they're trampling one another, trying to get close enough to hear him, he's over here, can I put it this way, he's in the locker room with his team. He's getting them ready. And if you read the locker room dialogue in the first several verses, he's telling them, listen, you're going to have enemies. They're not going to like you. They don't like me, they're not going to like you. And you've got to get ready. That team that we're playing against, they're pretty fierce. And he's, he's speaking to his disciples when all of a sudden a man, and this is kind of rude, it's kind of brusque, kind of breaking protocol, but a man from the huge crowd comes out to him saying, and look at verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, so the parents died. I don't know if there's other siblings. The Bible doesn't tell us. It was at least this man and his brother. Now listen, you got to get this. Likely his brother is right there. That's the inference that the text makes. He wants more money. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, the word teacher means rabbi. And it's really not very uncommon, or can I put it the other way? It's pretty common for rabbis to arbitrate or to rule over civil or family disputes. So he's not doing something that's not heard of. It's just a little rude how he's doing what he's doing, and he wants more money. And look what Jesus does. He sees deeply into the man's heart, and he speaks not to the man alone. He speaks to all of those that could hear verse 15 Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, who's he speaking about? Well, likely that man and the brother who won't share. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, listen, he just diagnosed the man's heart. I mean, this is Jesus. He just snaps x-rays of your heart and throws it up on the backlit wall and says, hey, here's what's going on. You've got a root problem called covetousness. And that's a serious heart issue. In fact, it's debilitating. Now, I want you to hear this, and you've got to get this. You ready? It's so debilitating that it can paralyze us from generous giving. This man needed a heart transplant. And friends, that's the way the gospel works in our lives. Now I want you to hear this. It gives us, the gospel gives us the want to do before the what to do. Now I'm going to say that again. The gospel gives us the want to do before the what to do. It gives you the desire before the command. You can't obey the command if you don't have a new heart. If you don't have a desire that says, I want to give generously, and then just preaching about it, it's not going to do any difference. And the gospel must work, and it's going to work in spectacular fashion. And Jesus is going to wield it well. Let's look at it. Two points, and then a few points underneath them both. We're going to look at the symptoms of a coveting heart. Now, that might sound boring. I think you're going to get interested in this as we go. But what are the symptoms? I mean, listen, if you've got heart pain... 
and you've got some pain radi radiating down one of your arms or maybe even your legs, and you've got a shortness of breath, well, we've got people in here that have had heart attacks. And they know those symptoms, and you've got to get to the doctor. Well, what are the symptoms of a coveting heart? There's a heart disease, and there are symptoms that go along with them. The first one is this, and this is where we've got to do a good job of really examining our own selves. The first one is this, selfishness. Look at what the text says. He told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully, verse 16, and he thought to himself. Now I want you to see something. Look up at me for a moment. Did you hear what that just said? Because I missed this until yesterday. I've been preparing this all week and I didn't even see this until yesterday. The land of a what man? A rich man. He's already wealthy. Somehow I missed that. Easy to do in the word of God. The land of a rich man. He's already rich. And then he has a bumper crop. He has a year where his land just produces an unbelievable harvest. But with that increase, he takes counsel with himself. You know, Denise and I... That's my wife. We recently had a very, very unexpected increase. It was in the form of a financial gift. And we agreed. So what do you do, by the way? This is what I'm recommending you do when God gives you an increase, an inheritance, a bonus, a raise, or a gift. Here's what I'm recommending you do. This is what Denise and I did. I can't wait to tell you what God did. We said to each other, let's pray. Let's pray separately about what God wants us to do with this increase. How can we generously give a portion of this increase? And we want to do it as God directs. So Denise, you pray and I'm going to pray and then we'll come back and talk. Well, we prayed for about a week and a half. And yesterday we sat down and we talked about it and I said, Denise, I think what I, I hear God saying is we should give a portion to a ministry that I named, and I think we should give a portion to a missionary that I named, and she just about fainted. She said, you have no idea, but that's exactly what God told me to. Listen, this is what you do when God gives you money. You don't think automatically, what can we buy with that money? How can we bring more goods into our life with our lives with that money? Lord, the very first thing is, what do you want me to do with this increase? Because it's yours, you supply seed to the sower, you're going to direct me the way you want. But the farmer in this council only took, or this in this story only took counsel with himself. You know, friends, listen, I've never met a generous person who refused counsel from others. And I've never met a stingy person who welcomed counsel from others. Listen, when you get an increase, it's okay to, to talk to somebody, including the Lord foremost, but maybe your spouse, maybe even your children, maybe your parents, maybe a godly friend. What do you think I ought to do with this increase? The farmer's impulse was to accumulate rather than share. He didn't, invite, he didn't invite anybody to speak into his plan and were allowed to listen 
to his self-counsel. Look what it says. What shall I do, he thinks. Now look at your text. For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. Now I want you to go back there and I want you to look. How many times do the words I and my occur? Quite a lot. But selfish people not only think to themselves, they speak to themselves. Look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, this is an internal dialogue. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, our self-talk, the thoughts that go raging through our minds, reveal our heart talk. Listen, if you want to know what's going on in your heart, just simply take notice of what's going on in your thinking. Because your thinking is coming from your heart. And this man, this farmer, believed that he now had enough goods, enough possessions, that he could determine his future. Well, let's ask ourselves some hard questions. Friends, who holds you accountable to how you spend your money? Let's talk about couples, married couples. Do you have an amount, hopefully a low amount, that neither of you can spend above without the other person's approval? That was some of the best advice we ever got in our pre-marriage counseling. We decided the amount would be $25. I can't spend. Now, this is not for groceries and gas. Those are accepted. But anything that I wanted to buy out of the norm that's uh, over $20, that's what it was, $20, then I had to go talk to Denise. I said, Denise, I'd like to get this. Are you okay with that? And sometimes she said, you know what, honey, I don't think we could do it. Or I don't think you need it. Why don't we use that money for something else? And I reluctantly would say, ah, all right. And there's sometimes she'd come to me and I would say, you know, I don't think so. Uh, let's wait till the next paycheck. Listen, we've been married 25 years. We will be married 25 years in March of this year. And in those 25 years, we've increased that amount from 20 to 25. We have kept it low to force us to talk and to hold each other accountable. Listen, couples, if you don't have that amount, you are opening yourself up for the attack of the enemy, the temptation that he brings. Find an amount, choose that amount, let it hold you accountable. But they counter. Now, listen, I teach this to married couples all the time. It's a standard part of pre marriage counseling. And sometimes those who have been married for a long time will say this back to me You know what? We're pretty good with our money, and we really trust each other. Well, they don't get it. Accountability is not about distrust. You don't have accountability because I don't trust you. Accountability is about pushing each other to give more wisely, to give more abundantly for the glory of God. Listen, accountability in marriage is to facilitate generous giving, not to ward against the mistakes or the distrust of the other person. So who's helping you, even if you're not married, who's helping you see the selfishness that you're capable of 
and pushing you beyond your comfort zone with giving. And most people will admit to me they don't have anybody in their life doing that. You're likely going to get to this level and never beyond it without accountability. It is a redemptively biblical pattern. Pray and ask God to bring somebody for you. Selfish people live self-directed lives. Look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I mean, listen, money can only be managed in two directions. You can only manage money for yourself or for God. Now, somebody might say, well, for other people, but the Bible says if you lend money to the poor, you're lending it to God. So listen, you can only manage it in two directions. You're going you're to manage money for yourself or you're going to manage money for God. And the beautiful truth is this. The Bible is really clear that it is not wrong to have a lot of money or a lot of possessions. Let me read to you some scripture. You shall remember the Lord your God... For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You ever seen that in there? That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Or 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now listen. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's okay if you've got things to enjoy. It's okay if you've got money. Job and Abraham, Boaz, Solomon, many, many other saints in the Bible, they had great wealth. Money and possessions are not evil. Having them is not wrong. But listen, loving them Trusting in them for your happiness, for your peace, for your security, that's wrong. And you cannot be content if you do. The rich toward God are generous givers who do not lay up treasures for themselves. But selfishness is one symptom that you've got a heart disease of coveting. But there's another one that Jesus gives. It's anxiety. Notice what he said in verse 22, and, he said, now, and he's, he's turning back to his disciples. He's halftime. Let's put it in the halftime locker room again. And he's speaking to his disciples. He said to his disciples, uh, why does Jesus do this? I mean, remember, you've got to get this. There's many thousands of people. They're clamoring, trampling to try to get to him. And he, he turns away from that crowd, and he comes back to speak to his disciples. I can tell you why he's doing this. <clears throat> I hope you remember this, especially if you're ever going to be a counselor. Transformation and change, don't we all want that? Transformation and change can happen only after you get to the heart and you look up to God. If you don't turn vertical, you cannot transform. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with, until you get to the heart, until you see where it goes vertical, until you do worship, until you do right with God, you cannot change. All you'll do is modify your behavior and learn to cope. If you want transformation, you got to get to God who brings you the grace that is surpassing to change. 
And the gospel aims deeply and it aims vertically to change us from the inside out to give, to give us the what to do before the what to do. And look at verse 22. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says to his disciples, do not be anxious about your life. Now, why is he saying this for? The context is coveting. He's teaching his young church, listen, you've got to be different than the world. You are Christians. You are my followers. You are my disciples. You cannot allow coveting to be a disease of your heart. And I'm telling you how you overcome it. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. You know what that word anxious means? It means to be torn apart. I hope you remember that. Because that's what it feels like when you're struggling with anxiety. Later on, look at verse 29. You see the word worried. That means to be held in suspense. We'll go back to anxious. That word described a ship being tossed about in a storm on a sea. An anxious person is being torn apart like a ship being tossed about in a hurricane. That word worry, though, you know what? If you look it up in the dictionary, and I would invite you to do it, Look for the Anglo-Saxon meaning or the British definition and you're going to see the word to strangle. That's what worrying feels like. It feels like you're being strangled. Corrie ten Boom, who survived a Nazi concentration camp, though her sister did not, wrote this. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Listen, worry is a sin. Anxiety, persisting in it, is wrong. There is something diseased in the heart. And Jesus says there's a better way for the Christian to live. Do not be anxious. Listen, you know what Jesus is doing? Now here's what he's doing. This is really fascinating. The coveting heart has a root. I hope you're hearing me because every one of us struggles to various degrees with coveting. The coveting heart has a root, and the root is fear. But you know what anxiety is? Anxiety is fear of the future, not fear of the past. It's not fear of the present, it's fear of the future. And this is what Jesus is saying, anxiety is what's moving a heart to covet. It's a system of idolatry, and it reveals a problem with trust. We don't trust God. That's why we worry about the future. That's why we're tossed about like a ship on a storm, and it moves us to hoard. It moves us to amass. It moves us to buy, to covet, to get everything we can to protect our future. And it's not just the rich and the famous who have the potential to covet. I mean, how many of us have garages that you can't park in because there's so much stuff? Or attics and basements that are full so we build sheds. Coveting is the opposite of generosity. It stores rather than gives. It accumulates versus shares. And very subtly, coveting begins to view our wants as if they're actually needs. Did you hear that? This is the power of coveting. It begins to move you to view your wants, the things you want, 
as things that you have to have. That's why Mark Twain defined civilization as a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. That's the kind of culture we live in. And that's a whole lot more profound than it might seem. Coveting makes our wants seem like needs. It's built on the lie that the thing is necessary to my happiness. It's necessary to my life. And by the way, listen, this is the very first sin in humanity. It was coveting that moved Eve to eat of the fruit that she should not have eaten from. It's a deception, and it's something the farmer learned too late. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Well, if you're struggling with a coveting heart, there's going to be two main symptoms. There's going to be a raging selfishness. You don't want a lot of accountability. And there's going to be a lot of anxiety and worry. But there's a better way to live. And Jesus gives us the way to overcome a coveting heart. Number one, you got to know your God's love. Christian, you have got to know your God's love. And this is the problem. This is why coveting stays intact in Christians. It's because they do not fully understand the, the extent of the love that God has for us. Look what he says, verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn and barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? Consider it means, the word means to observe fully. It means to contemplate. It means to really pay attention to something. It's what the Apostle Paul was saying in Colossians. If then you've been seated or raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds, that's what it means to consider, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Put to death, therefore, covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen, just work backwards in that, that, those verses, and you'll understand idolatry, which is covetousness, exists because we keep seeking the things of this earth, thinking that they're going to bring us life. Pay attention to how God cares for ravens. Listen, did you know ravens were forbidden to eat in the Old Testament? They were detestable birds. They were unclean birds. If you want to stack up birds from worthy birds to unworthy birds, you're going to get to the very bottom and find ravens. And God says, listen, I even take care of the ravens, which are unclean unworthy birds they don't sow they don't reap they don't store like squirrels or ants yet God takes care of them you get to see how he does that in Job chapter 38 who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food the answer is God God even provides for detestable birds and how much more value are you? Why would God not provide for you what you need? Even more, he says, pay attention to the lilies. That's a generic term for flowering plants. 
not the lilies that you might be thinking in your mind. And he says, they don't make themselves beautiful. God makes them beautiful, but why? Listen, there's what they did. They didn't have a lot of wood in the ancient land of Palestine. They would take grass, they would cut it with a scythe, they would dry it, and then they would put it into their small ovens to cook and bake their food. That's what they use grass for, and this is what Jesus says. He makes the, the flowers beautiful, but they've got a limited lifespan. They're going to be used to make your food. How much more will he clothe you, Christian, who has been saved for eternal glory? I mean, come on, this is what Jesus is saying. He's trying to use their own metaphors. If God loves ravens and God loves flowering grass that much that he takes care of them, then what about you? You're made in the image of God. He died for you. He didn't die for the grass. He didn't die for the ravens. He died for you. He's going to take care of you. Why worry? Why do we have anxiety? Why are we ships tossed on the stormy seas of life's uncertainties? We've got a God that will promise to take care of us. And Jesus takes the scalpel of his word and with surgical precision, look at your text, says, oh, you of little faith. This is hard to hear. But if you struggle with coveting that produces a lack of contentment, you have little faith. And the gospel wants to help. Those who do not give generously and instead live for this life and they're amassing and they're storing, well, listen, they've got a faith problem. And they cannot experience contentment and peace. And how ridiculous that is. Look at verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, add an hour to your life, then why are you anxious about the rest? One wise preacher said this. I never have forgotten it. Worry is like a rocking chair. It's a whole lot of motion, but you're never going to get anywhere worrying and it is sobering for christians to hear this but a covetous heart does not trust god so look into your heart through the lens of the gospel answer these two questions what needs has god not met in your life what needs has god not met in your life can I tell you something? You're not going to be able to answer with even one. And if you think you can answer them, the second question, before I get to the second question, the second subset question, is that really a need or is that a want? But ask yourself, what idol can truly satisfy you? Because this is what idolatry does. If you don't trust God, it creates a fork in your heart. You can only move one of two ways. You can either move to God to trust that he's going to meet your needs, or you can move to a God substitute who promises to do it for you. you know, I'm listening all week to Pandora while I'm writing this sermon. I listen to um, epic movie soundtracks. Very little words, just music. Helps transport me to a happy place while I write my sermons. That was a joke. Nobody's really laughing. The rough crowd. 
Thank you. That was a courtesy laugh. So I'm listening in this ad for a luxury car keeps coming on, probably came on 20 times. Is buying this car a want or a need? It's both. And listen, you've got to separate wants from needs because the world wants to convince you that what you want really is what you need. And it's a lie. It's a deception. You've got to know your God and how much he loves you. But secondly, you got to live for the right kingdom. you got to live for the right kingdom. Fear for a believer, it's a belief system built on a lie. I mean, what can possibly happen to us that is not authored by God's sovereign hand? What is it we truly need that he's not going to provide? So I got another email. I'm getting a lot of emails from these sermons, which is great. And this one I shared with permission as well, and it writes this. My husband's income recently took a big hit by about $200 a week. Now, that's a big hit. Having lost part of his route due to a store closing. And we keep saying we are waiting to see what God has planned and how he will provide, but saying and doing are two different things. And our daily prayer has been for God to provide. Show us how we need to view our new situation and to live in a way so family, our family sees us glorifying God. And that came into my email box Sunday afternoon. We sat, we prayed Monday morning in our staff meeting. We just asked God to be proving his sovereign providential love. I get an email, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. We received good news today. Come February, my husband will pick up a major store. And we are giving God the praise for our quick answer and looking forward to our next challenge to put our trust in God. Listen, that person gets it. That's how you grow. That's how the power of coveting gets overwhelmed and gets overcome. And the gospel surpassing grace begins to give us the want to before we do the what do, what to do. Why do we tear ourselves apart with worry? Why do we hoard? Why do we store? It's the way the world lives. Look what Jesus says. All the nations of the world seek after these things. Christian, we've got to be different. We've got to be trusting that our verse 31, our Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. But what is the kingdom of God? Remember the point. We've got to live for the right kingdom. Well, what's the kingdom of God? Well, look on the screen and you'll see a definition. The kingdom of God is the invisible realm of God's loving rule that is made visible, listen, through the church. This is why we, the church, Christians, we've got to be different from the world because God is made visible through the way that we live. As we live in such a way that exercises faith, obedience, and love. Listen, that's how you are rich toward the kingdom of God. That's how you build the kingdom of God. And we're charged with bringing God's kingdom to this world. And we've got to live in a way that is distinct from the world. Not preoccupied, not pursuing barns and storehouses of stuff, but ready to share it all. Knowing that God's great love for us 
is huge and trusting in his promise to care for us and captivated by the glory of the kingdom of God. It fills our hearts with the power to overcome coveting and become generous givers. The gospel of grace makes the want to do precede the what to do. The gospel of grace makes the want to do, the desire, the motivating power precede the actions, the behavior. Listen, if you skip the want to do, you're never going to be able to do the what to do. Not for very long. And what is it that we are to do? Well, look what it says. Sell your possessions, Jesus says, and give to the needy. Most of us, listen, we don't take this seriously. When you hear about a need, pray and consider selling something that you own and give so you can meet the need. Not getting rid of your half-broken stuff that you don't even want anymore, thinking that you're showing love, but listen, giving sacrificially, giving of our best, sharing lovingly with those around us as God directs. Listen, if you want contentment like you've never had it before, then trust God and begin to generously give money and finances. The what to do is verse 33. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. That simply and gloriously means you got to shift your investment to the kingdom of God. You got to quit investing in laying up treasures on earth. You got to lay them up in heaven. Now, I heard of a wealthy man who, upon request, was buried sitting behind the wheel of his Cadillac. The whole car was buried, and he's sitting behind the wheel. That car is still there. It's rusting, it's rotting. Only went as far as a deeply dug grave. That's as far as anything from earth is going to go. Our hearts will follow what we treasure. Look at what he says, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Listen, if you've got, if you go to the bank and you bring home a thousand dollars and you put it in your purse or you put it in your wallet. I remember doing this years ago. I put the wallet in my front pocket. I kept my hand on it. I just kept feeling like somebody's going to rob me at any point. Right? When you've got something valuable, you guard it. You protect it. You pay attention to it. You put it in the most secure place you can. You make sure it's safe. Listen, moms, you do this, right? You go to Dorney Park. You go to Disney with your little children. And there are thousands and thousands of people all around weaving in and out. Don't you keep your children right close? You hold on to their hand. Listen, what is valuable and precious to you, you hold on to and you make sure it's safe. That's what we do when we treasure most. Gets our time, gets our attention, gets our efforts and our hearts. If you focus on true treasures in God's kingdom, then your hearts are going to detach from the ones on earth. That new house is going to fade. That luxury car being able to get to zero to 80 in about two seconds, listen, that's going to fade from your heart because you're focusing on the right treasures. 
So give inward to the heart, and you will overcome the power of coveting. But I'm going to try to answer one tough question after every one of these sermons in this series. And this is a question that was provoked from last week, and it bears even into today's message. Should a Christian have a retirement plan? Should a Christian have a retirement plan? I'm going to answer this in two ways. The first one, very, very quickly, the first answer is this. You, got, you have to do what God directs you to do. And sometimes God directs a Christian to give their money away and depend on him. I believe that's the minority. I think for most of us, the answer lies in this direction. If your picture, now I'm speaking to all of us, if your picture of retirement is like the farmer in this sermon, a life of ease and lounging around, then you are neither biblical in your thinking or likely to be long for this world. I don't think you're going to live long. You retire and you get to now just lounge on the beach and collect seashells. Listen, I don't think you're going to have long for this earth. And you are certainly not living biblically. But as it often is with the gospel, the answer has got to be directed toward our hearts. So retirement, listen, retirement is an opportunity to serve God in ways you could not when you were constrained in your line of work. You hear that? It's a whole brand new opportunity to serve God. And saving for retirement allows us to retire into what is often a greater time of serving in God's kingdom. Now listen, without being a burden on people. You're not a burden on others. You're not a burden on our society. You're not a burden on a church because you have responsibly saved so that when you hit retirement, you can serve God. Solomon used ants in the book of Proverbs to show us the wisdom and saving for times of leanness. Joseph was praised for his prudence in preparing Egypt for seven years of famine. He saved the young nation of Israel by doing it. The one who plans poorly, listen, you will become a burden on your family, on your society, and on your church. And I'm going to give you five questions to courageously ask yourself and to invite accountability for as you are saving for retirement. Here they are. You ready? They're going to be quick. Are my retirement savings eliminating my need for retirement trusting? Did you hear that? Am I trying to get enough so I don't have to worry about a thing? That's not biblical. You are the farmer in Luke chapter 12. And you need to repent. And the way you need to repent is get to your heart and be set free by the gospel. Your second question I would invite you to courageously ask. Have I willingly yielded my retirement plans and my retirement savings to God's discretion? What if God were to take them away? Would you be okay? Your retirement savings are God's, not yours. And if God says, I'm going to take them and divert them over here where there is a need, would you be okay with it? 
Question number three, am I learning or leaning rather, am I leaning away from a fat retirement account toward immediate generosity now? Am I trying to save so much that I can't be generous now? That's not biblical. Am I doing what I can to provide for my family and not be a financial burden on them, my society, or my church? Am I doing responsibly what I can now? Now here is one that I don't think very many of us ask. Is it within my plan to financially assist the elderly poor in their retirement? Is that money that you are saving for retirement only for you and your family, or is some of that ready to go to helping the elderly poor be able to make it through their retirement years? They didn't have the opportunity to save. And let me close by offering an encouragement. This is huge. Friends, aim for a zero-sum death. Earn all you can, give wisely all you can, and go into eternity holding on to nothing. That is generous giving. And that is biblical retirement. Amen?